0: We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, and uh, I think it's been 10 plus years, so maybe you're old enough to remember the, uh, the Al Gore documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Well, we're going to be talking about An Inconvenient Truth this morning, not of that variety, but of the biblical variety. So I'm going to read John chapter 6, verses 47 through 69, and then we'll pray and get started. So John 6, 47 through 69. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were, those were who did not believe in it and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come this morning uh, to a text that they're hard words. Many who followed Jesus found them hard, and even his, even the 12 found them hard to hear. I pray this morning that you would open the eyes and ears of our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning, that the offense of the cross would be our glory. I pray, too, that you would be with the Pack family Uh, that they would have a time of rest and uh, just blessing and fellowship with fellow pastors and their families. In Jesus' name, amen. So in John chapter 6, we have the the Bread of Life discourse. We have the account. uh, In that Bread of Life discourse starts with uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, which as you know, it's probably more like 10,000 if you include women and children. And as a result, people are pursuing Jesus. They're coming after him. In fact, even to the point where they try to forcibly make Jesus their king. And what does Jesus say is their motivation for pursuing him? He says in John 6.26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. These crowds, these people following Jesus, they were looking to be sated with temporal things, with full bellies and a political messiah who was going to come and overthrow their Roman oppressors. They didn't understand what Jesus' true mission was. I don't think his disciples even fully understood what his true mission was. Jesus explains further in 627, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And Jesus explains in verse 29 what that food is. It's believing in him. They still don't get it. They still think Jesus is talking about bread like the manna in the wilderness. That God gave to His people in the Old Testament. You know, Jesus says, in um, in verse in verse thirty four, thirty. Excuse me, thirty two. Um, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they're like, great, you know, you fed your people Israel. Um, they say, sir, give us this bread always. Man, if this, if this is like manna that constantly is coming to us and will sustain us eternally, then give us that bread. Jesus is like, no, 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 you, you don't get it. I am the bread of life. In verse 51, he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then he's got to explain it a little further. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice about this passage. John's gospel is the only one that does not have an account of the Lord's Supper. And people will often look at John chapter 6 and interpret Jesus' words about eating my flesh and drinking my blood as, um, as a metaphor for communion. And while there's maybe an illusion there, that is not what John uh, is talking about in John 6 as in the other Gospels. In, those, in the other Gospels, when Jesus talks about this is my body... At the Lord's Supper, he uses a Greek, the Greek word soma, which is translated body. But here, Jesus uses kind of a more visceral word, sarx, which means flesh. You know, actual, like, physical flesh. There's another place. The first instance of this in John is found in John 1.14. The word became flesh. It is... It's as the incarnate word that Jesus is able to give his flesh for the life of the world. He's talking about what? He's talking about the sacrifice of his own body that he voluntarily gives, that he gives in our behalf, on our behalf, in our stead. So people aren't understanding him, he gets a little more graphic, and in verse 52, the the Jews, the teachers and lead, religious leaders, they're shocked by this statement, and they break out into this argument. I mean, how, can this, how can this guy give us his flesh to eat? Now, I don't think it takes a genius to figure out Jesus is not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about actually eating his flesh. No, I don't think anybody seriously believed that, but if not that, then what did he mean? Well, if you remember back in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus about being born again, Nicodemus has the same issue. Like, I'm an old guy. How can a man go back into his mother's womb to be born a second time? Now, Nicodemus, I don't think either that's what Jesus meant, literally. But he didn't know what he meant. So now... For more clarity, in verses 53 and 54 of John chapter 6, Jesus restates what he said in verse 51. Except here he makes it conditional and even more offensive. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, and here's the condition, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus tells them that the life he's talking about is not some optional gift that we can afford to ignore. The conditional part is that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no life in them. In other words, apart from the life that Jesus offers, they are dead. We are dead. And Jesus adds to the eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament and Old Testament dietary laws, you were, God's people were strictly forbidden from drinking blood or even eating meat that had the blood still in it, which makes Jesus' claim even more scandalous. I mean, that's offensive about what That's what's offensive about what Jesus is saying. But I think even more so, the offense is that the Jews who prided themselves on keeping the law thought that they were not going to be able to work to earn God's favor. The word that became flesh now says, He's going to give His flesh for the life of the world so that that the world may have life. Giving life to the world, in fact, requires that He give His flesh. I mean, there's no other way. It was God's plan from the beginning. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's offensive to a lot of people. It offends human wisdom and reason. It goes against this notion that anything worth having is something you have to work hard for. It's not some philosophy you can sit around at the coffee shop and, and ponder and um, play with mentally. Or it's not a set of external rules that you can check off, follow and check off. Daily. It's not a means by which we can earn our way to heaven. That's why Jesus used such graphic terms. By faith, we have to appropriate or take within ourselves the benefits of Jesus' suffering and death. You can sit around and talk about the wonderful life sustaining properties of food. And you can agree intellectually that you need to eat to live, but unless you actually take that food into your body, you're going to die. Look at verses uh, 55 through 56. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So in what sense is Jesus' flesh and blood real food and drink? Well, other food, including the manna in the Old Testament, had some value, right? It was food that could sustain physical life. But Jesus' flesh and blood impart not only eternal life but also sustain a saving faith that's what Jesus means when he says in 56 and 57 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father whoever so whoever feeds on me he will also live because of me God the father is the source of all life And our only life comes from trusting and remaining in Christ. There is no life outside of Jesus abiding in us. Now, I look around and it looks like, you know, we're all regulars here. Um, But if you're sitting here this morning thinking that you know all you need to know about Jesus and what he did for you and you don't and you haven't appropriated that by faith then you'll starve to death in fact the bible says that without christ in you you're already dead in trespasses and sins there's no genuine life outside of christ Eternal life always and only comes through Jesus. Eating his flesh and drinking his blood means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Jesus Christ, and by believing, to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the only real food, the only food that satisfies the soul. Now, in verse 60, we find out that it's not only the religious leaders, but Jesus' disciples who are having trouble with this teaching. I think it's important at this point that we make a distinction about disciples, like the disciples in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? and the disciples in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12 in verse 67. We need to make a distinction between the disciples in 60 and 66 with the 12 in verse 67. Just as there are two kinds of saving faith, two kinds of faith, saving faith and Spurious or bogus faith. Like the people at the end of John chapter 2 um, who follow Jesus and walk away. People who believe because they're follow- they think they're following a magician. They're following him because of the show that he puts on, the signs that he performs. There are also two kinds of disciples. In John 8.31, Jesus describes what characterizes true disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. By definition, then, the disciples in verse 60 are not true disciples because they don't remain in his word. They find this teaching to be a hard one and wonder who can accept it. I mean, you can be a disciple intellectually, right? Thinking Jesus was a great teacher, with good words to live by, a guy I work with, uh, I was talking with Friday night. And uh, that's basically his view. Jesus is, he was a great teacher, he's someone to emulate. Now you can be that kind of a disciple. Or like many of these people who followed Jesus, you could be a political disciple. They were expecting a Messiah who would come and free them from the oppression of uh, the Romans. You could be a groupie disciple. Like I was saying earlier, you know, following the great miracle worker. You want to catch the show every night. Go on tour. Or you could be what I've... (laughs) This is a dated reference, but you could be a Mr. Rogers disciple, following Jesus in the land of make-believe to have your belly filled with bread and always have that warm, fuzzy feeling. People were following Jesus for all sorts of reasons. People follow Jesus today for all sorts of reasons. But now, those disciples are finding his teaching here in John chapter 6 hard to hear. So what's hard about this teaching that you need to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood in order to have eternal life. Well, when they say hard, when John uses the word hard here in verse 60, he's not, it doesn't mean, like, difficult to understand, but it means harsh or offensive. These are harsh words. The idea that, that the Messiah who was to come had to suffer and die was grossly offensive to people. They had in mind that political Messiah who would come uh, in power like a mighty king leading his army to wipe out their enemies. That's what they were expecting. And they were also offended because it was a concept that didn't fit with their religious system. That by obeying their set of man-made rules and regulation, you could earn God's favor and earn your way into heaven. Well, I think when we read the Gospels, we're always quick to say, "Oh, those religious leaders, man, they never—you know—they never got it." But you know what? It doesn't fit. In 2016, Seattle, it doesn't fit our religious conceptions either. You believe Jesus was a good teacher, you know, someone to emulate. You follow the set of rules the best you can, the golden rule. People still, you know, talk about, oh, I follow the golden rule, and I do unto others as I would have them do unto me. You go to church every Sunday. You're nice to kittens. (laughs) You recycle and compost. And you end up in heaven right? I mean, that is a lot of the religious philosophy today. That's why why this is offensive. That's why Jesus had to put this in such graphic terms, so that there would be no mistaking what he meant. He didn't want anyone walking away thinking they were a true disciple when they weren't. Jesus says to them in verses 61 and 62, oh, you're offended by this? Let me give you something to be offended by. Wait until you see the Son of Man ascend to where He was before. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, whose glory we could not look on in His glorified state and live, that Jesus came down from heaven, and He took on this corrupt human flesh, this decaying tent that we live in. He spends 33-odd years on this planet, and how is he getting back to heaven? How is he going to ascend to where he was before? Through that. The sinless Son of God was rejected by his own people, falsely accused, brutally beaten and tortured to the point where it says in Isaiah 52, he was so disfigured one would scarcely know he was a person. And then he was nailed hand and foot to a Roman cross, the most insidious tool of death and torture pretty much ever devised in the ancient world. And then the truly awful part, God takes your sin and mine and the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, And he dumps it all on his one and only son. And then he turns away. That's how Jesus ascends back to the Father. That's the path Jesus takes to return to heaven and his former glory at the right hand of God. Well, these people didn't want to hear that. People today don't want to hear that. Stop, that's not right. That's not the way the world works. Kings don't die on crosses, at least not conquering kings. That's where they put losers. I'm a good guy. I've worked hard all my life. I've worked hard at my religion, and I've earned the right to march into heaven with a winner. Not a loser. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? In verse 18 For the message of the cross is what? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I know it doesn't make any sense, it stands in complete opposition to all human wisdom. The moment of Jesus' greatest degradation and shame is the very moment of His glorification and our redemption. It's the greatest scandal. It's the greatest foolishness of all time. And yet, how we respond to this scandal determines our destiny. Whether we spend eternity with Christ in heaven, or we spend eternity in hell apart from Him. (laughs) You can't get around the cross. It stands in your way. You will only keep banging into it until you either submit to its truth and appropriate its benefits by faith in Jesus Christ, or until you are judged at the last day and receive the rightful punishment for your rejection of that same cross. There's no other way. Jesus goes on in verses 63 and 64 to explain again that Their material or their natural interpretation of what he said completely misses the mark. Look, once and for all, guys, I'm not talking about bread here. I'm talking about a physical, temporal reality that you're going to be able to wrap your corrupted, darkened human intellects around. That's not what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm the Word made flesh. Yes, I give my flesh for the life of the world, but these are spiritual realities I speak of, Jesus says. These are the life-giving words of the Spirit that can only be understood spiritually. Jesus is not surprised that although His words are the sole source of life, that many still did not believe him. Jesus says, that's why I told you that you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the most persuasive preaching in the world, the, the cleverest gimmicks, the slickest presentation, how the, the preacher waves his arm or pounds the pulpit, how loud or soft his voice gets, how funny the jokes are, none of that really makes any difference. I mean, look, when Jesus himself was the preacher... Most of those folks didn't understand and respond with saving faith. It's not about the messenger. I don't have to convince or persuade you of anything. The messenger's role is to proclaim the truth of God's word, the whole counsel of God. That's the message. That's the the role of the messenger. How you respond is God's business and your business. You have to come with an open heart. You have to be seeking God, and God has to draw you. He has to enable you to receive, not, not just into your mind, but into your heart the life-giving truth of His Word. I mean, you can come into a church that preaches the gospel, and you can hear the gospel message a thousand times and walk out of church saying, oh, what a lovely message, pastor. Or you can walk out saying, whatever. It's not going to make any difference until the day that light comes on for you and the living... An active word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, lays you open, and you fall to your knees in repentance. That's why every Sunday, unapologetically, you hear the message of the cross. Man, do those guys know how to preach anything else? Pastor Andrew, every Sunday, it's Jesus, you know? How about recycling to the glory of God? (laughs) Or how Amazon is the whore of Babylon? (laughs) Or three easy steps to a happy and holy marriage? Well, because all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, points to the cross. That's why. I mean, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you are, and you're passionately and persistently telling your family and friends and co-workers, anyone who will listen about Jesus, I don't know the day the light will come on for you or for those folks hearing. I know this, though. I want to make sure that it's the gospel you hear when that light does come on. Uh. A couple of weeks ago, we, were, we went camping over on Hood Canal, and we drove by a little rural church that had one of those little mobile reader boards out front. I loved it, and I wish I would taken a picture, and I didn't. But it said, Sunday's message, colon, Jesus saves. And my wife and I, we laughed. We looked at that and said, that should be on the reader board every Sunday, I spoke with a pastor one, when I was a pastor in Montana. I was at a conference, and I was speaking with one of my fellow pastors, and I remember him saying, I preach salvation once every three months. I figure that's enough. You know, like it's Brussels sprouts or a flu shot. Think about how often and how many come wanting. Maybe they come with the light on that God has illuminated their hearts and minds to receive the truth of his word, and they end up leaving not having heard the words of life. Now, God is sovereign, and uh, I'm not saying that, you know, that would be saying that it's totally on the messenger. Well, you didn't deliver the gospel, so now that person's not going to come to know Jesus. But sad that somebody would come seeking God, needing to hear the words of truth and come to a church on Sunday morning and not hear them. Like I said before, it's not the role of the person who stands in this pulpit to convince or persuade you. It's not to fill bellies with bread so that we can walk away from church with that warm, fuzzy, cozy feeling inside. The job of the person in this pulpit on Sunday morning is to obediently proclaim God's Word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God applies it to your life. If you're seeking after God and He's given you spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, then they're going to be words of peace or conviction or comfort or invitation, whatever God wants you to receive in that moment. But if your heart is closed and the light hasn't come on for you, then they're going to be words that cause offense. They're going to be words that you're going to bang and bloody your shins on. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, they're going to be words that carry the stench of death. And you know what? If that's not the case, then we're not preaching the gospel. And you need to get somebody up here who will. You may as well go to the farmer's market or go to the dog park on Sunday morning. You'll get more out of it. Well, that's why so many of Jesus' followers turned away and no longer followed Him. The offense of the cross didn't fit their way of thinking. So now Jesus turns to the twelve, to Peter and the twelve, and He asks them, Do you want to leave too? Now, the way Jesus asks them this question It's kind of a rhetorical question. He's expecting their answer to be no. Why? Well, Jesus chose the 12. He asked the question for their benefit. I mean, they were given him by the Father, he says earlier, and we know from verse 39 that Jesus will lose none of all that the Father has given him. It's a challenge to them. They need to articulate a response more than Jesus needs to hear their answer. So what's their response? Peter answers by saying, where else are we going to go? Lord, we have nowhere else to go. Now, we know that until after Jesus rose from the dead, even his 12 didn't fully understand what he was talking about. But this teaching in John, and this teaching in John 6 was probably hard for them to hear too. I mean, in Matthew 16, Peter even rebukes Jesus for talking about his suffering and death. That's that's the passage where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So we know that here, even Peter doesn't fully understand what Jesus is talking about, but he knows that there's no other way. Jesus' words, however hard they were to hear, at times, were still the only life-giving words that Peter knew of. Peter knew that. He, as the rest of the twelve knew, with, of course, the exception of Judas Iscariot, his betrayer, they knew that Jesus was the Holy One of God. I don't get everything you're saying, Jesus, but we got nowhere else to go. You're the only one who has the words of eternal life that's it. Jesus is the only way. The cross is the only way. Yes, the Christian life is the abundant life that Jesus promised. Yes, there is obviously great joy in being a follower of Christ. But we also know that on this side of heaven, we're promised persecution. Jesus even says, the world's going to hate you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. We also know that the Christian life is about mortifying the flesh, putting to death the things of our old nature, our old ways, and putting on Christ. John tells us in his letters that we're not to love the world or anything in it. I mean, Jesus even tells us that we're not to love anyone, including parents, spouse, even our own children more than we love Jesus. They're hard words. But it's better that you hear it now rather than later. If you're following Jesus and you're hoping to have that warm, fuzzy feeling all the time, You're going to be seriously disappointed. And you're going to end up turning back when difficult times come. And if they haven't, trust me, they will come. It would be neither honest nor loving of the person standing here to avoid preaching that glorious and awful truth of the gospel. Now, as Christians, we're, we're used to talking about Christ's sacrifice. To be honest, I think for us, because we're used to singing about the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice, it loses, it loses some of its punch to us. But when you're hearing this kind of message with the natural mind, I remember a pastor at a church I used to be at, he talked about when he was not a Christian, and he heard Christians singing, there is a fountain filled with blood. (laughs) He was horrified. I mean, he's imagining, you know, like a fountain downtown Seattle with sticky red blood spewing out of it. I mean, that's offensive to people, and I think as Christians, we forget that that imagery is offensive, but the cross was an offense. It's supposed to be offensive. Now, if the preacher, if I've personally offended you, then I apologize. However, if you found the message of the cross offensive, well, then good. (laughs) I must have done my job. And the gospel was preached. If you're seeking after God and God has illuminated your mind and heart, then I urge you, Today to respond in faith and to appropriate Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. If you, the Bible says if you admit your sin and your need of Jesus and believe that He died on the cross to take away the penalty of your sin and that He rose again, if you, if you believe that today, you can share in this table for the first time. I encourage those of us who know Jesus and have known Jesus to embrace the glorious and offensive and awful truth of the cross as you come to this table this morning. Not morbidly, but try to think about the cross the way you did when you first understood it when that light first came on for you. And then rejoice that the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf has cleansed you of your sins and given you eternal life. As we get ready to come to the table, just a couple of logistics. There's juice and wine according to your conscience. There's the bread and then there's gluten-free on the left side, there and an offering, a basket for offering. I wanted to read a, a couple verses, a couple passages that uh, talk a little bit more about what this table means. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one loaf. And then 1 Corinthians 11, 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, this table this morning is open to all who have received, believed and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, the bread and the juice, they are Symbols. They're emblems of Christ's body and blood, but they're not empty symbols. They're a visible sign that He is truly and spiritually present with us, not, not in a physical way, uh, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that somehow the bread and the cup actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and not, in, not even necessarily in the, the more Reformed or Lutheran sense that He's spiritually present in the actual elements, but But we know that as we're gathered here together in His name, that the Spirit is here with us. And the Spirit resides in each person who's been born again. And I believe if He's specially present with us as we gather together in His name, that we can expect that He's present in a special way at this table. He invites us to come and to remember His death and to participate in the benefits of His death, forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Him. When we come to this table, we celebrate the spiritual nourishment that Jesus gives to our souls. And we celebrate our oneness in Christ and our unity with all believers. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You, for the offense of the cross. They are hard words to hear, but they are the words of life. We thank you that you sent your one and only son, perfect holy son of God, to earth to take on human flesh, to live the perfect sinless life we could not, and to take the penalty for our sins on the cross. And then to return to you to sit in your right hand in glory again. I pray that as we come to this table this morning, we would rejoice in that. And that you would help us to rejoice in our unity together. Not just as believers here at Anchor Church, but with your church around the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.